According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Numbers, Numbers chapter 4 and 5 for this hour. We have reached day 61 in the Through the Bible reading. Day 61, clan duties and maintaining purity. And uh, we're going to be covering uh, chapters 4 and 5. Numbers chapter 4 and 5. And by the way, we have already done 7, 8, and 9. So after day 61, then we will go to numbers 6 and 10 for day 62. And then numbers 11 following, then we're just off. Remember, we've already handled chapter 7, 8, and 9 that came towards the end of Exodus and before we started Leviticus. There it was. The tabernacle was complete in Exodus chapter 40. We had a paragraph out of Numbers chapter 9. Then we had Numbers 7, Numbers 8, and then the rest of Numbers chapter 9 before we began Leviticus. All right, so you, of course, have not forgotten any of that. That's all still up here in your thinking. And now we're, uh, we're advancing through Numbers. All right, so that's where we are. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, once again we come before You with thanksgiving. Uh, so thankful, Father, that You were so faithful to bless our studies, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, to continue giving us, Father, an appetite to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Father, we, uh, we're now concluding our second month. Uh, we've got ten more months to go. We've had four books already behind us with Genesis, Job, Exodus, Leviticus. And now we're into numbers, Father, and, and just thanking you so much that you have put us on this course. We are now uh, advancing full speed ahead and all glory to you, Father, for uh, making these things possible. Keep us hungry, keep us positive, keep us uh, growing in your truth. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I remembered what I was going to demonstrate at the end of last hour, so um, don't let me forget again. If I forget by the end of this hour, I'll show you what, uh, what that is. Moving on. Numbers chapter 4, specific instructions for Kohathite. And, he, and the Kohath services are now spelled out. So, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi, by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years, all who enter the service to do the work of the tent of meeting. So now we have a, a service enrollment that is not the 20 and up that was for military duties, not for the one and one month and up, which was the Levitical duties. This is These are the priestly duties now from 30 to 50 for spiritual service to the Lord. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. I mean, you can imagine it's a scary thing to move when just viewing it is instant death. So how do they move it? How does that happen when moving day comes along? Well, we start to see these procedures as they're spelled out here. And it begins with Aaron and his sons. 
And it's kind of interesting, taking down the veil in such a way that as they pull it off the hooks, they can then move forward and drape it over the top of the ark itself so that no one sees it, no one touches it, no one is uh, incinerated by the nuclear blast that would come by, uh, by touching this uh, Shekinah glory. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it. They shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles over the table of the bread of presence. So these duties get spelled out through these first 20 verses here. And I don't want to get lost in these details before I get caught up on these procedures. Here we go. Okay, let's go on down through verse 20 then. So over the uh, the table of the bread of the presence, they shall also spread a cloth of blue and put it on the dishes and on the pans and on the sacrificial bowls and the jars for the drink offering on the continual bread uh, shall be on it. So again, the cover goes on top so that the wrong person doesn't touch the holy bread. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with a covering of purpose skin that they shall insert as poles. Then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light, along with its lamps and its snuffers and its trays and all its oil vessels by which they serve it. And they shall put it in all its utensils in a covering of porpoise skin and shall put it on the carrying bars. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth. This is the uh, altar of incense, the smaller altar that's inside the holy place. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of porpoise skin and shall insert its poles. And they shall take all the utensils of service with which they serve in the sanctuary and put them in a blue cloth and cover them with a covering of porpoise skin and put them on the carrying bars. What's up with the color blue? Why do we keep having that blue again and again and again? Well, maybe one of these verses will tell us. And if none of these verses tells us, then maybe we should just invent something, make it up and write a book and say, hey, I think this is what blue represents. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall also put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pans, the fork, the shovels, the basins, all the utensils of the altar. They shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. Do you notice this one was purple though, not blue? Did you spot that? Yeah, this one's good. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. So they will not touch the holy objects and die. Really, really critical that you have the priests that are getting these things ready for transport. Otherwise, uh, you're going to run out of Kohathites pretty quickly as uh, they would come in and touch something they shouldn't touch. And, and then you're out of, uh, out of porters to lug your luggage. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The responsibility of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light and the fragrant incense and the continual grain offering and the anointing oil. The responsibility of all the tabernacle and all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Remember the younger son, Ithamar, was the treasurer. He was the one that was reckoning the gifts that were given and the, the, uh, the money that they received and all the donations uh, so he has the treasurer duties, but Eliezer has responsibility for these, these um, worship uh, items. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites. So being cut off meaning they touch something they shouldn't touch, they see something they shouldn't see, they, they eat something they shouldn't eat, whatever. They're going to transgress their boundaries. They have the highest risk 
because they are working so closely in the, the holy place with these holy items. But do this to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load. But they shall not go in to see the holy objects, even for a moment, or they will die. All right, so that is absolutely serious. This is the the utmost of the security clearances that they have to be assigned with all the duties related to this. I, I would be very happy to be uh, of the tribe of, of Issachar, somewhere as far away from the holy place as I could get, just to be you know up there in the northern coast near Tyre and Sidon or something, um, at the farthest reaches of the land grant, so that I'm not anywhere near this instant death. So those are the Kohathite duties. Uh, a service enrollment was conducted from age 30 to age 50 for spiritual service to the Lord. Out of the 8,600 Kohathites from one month age and up, we saw that in the chapter 3 census, uh, 2,750 were of an age for Levitical service. So they're in this range. They have an age where they start, and then they have a mandatory retirement age at 50. Elaborate procedures were in place for the Kohathites in carrying the holy objects without endangering their lives in the process. And Eliezer was specifically tasked with overseeing the Kohathite endeavors. I mentioned the heir apparent. You know, he is the next in line to be the high priest. And so his duties, he has the clan leadership duties of, uh, of this clan of the Levites. Next we have the Gershonites. Am I using that phrase right? The heir, yeah, yeah, the heir apparent, like Prince Charles. Always, he's the he's the one next in line to be king after Elizabeth's never going to die. But if she ever does, then uh, Prince Charles is the Prince of Wales. Why is he the Prince of Wales? Because that's the hereditary title that gets assigned to the to the heir apparent. All right. And then as soon as he becomes king, then his oldest son becomes the the Prince of Wales because he's the he's in the the on deck circle in the uh, the batting metaphor. He's uh, he's the next one ready to go far as that goes. All right. So you could think of Eliezer as the Prince of Wales, if you will, to, to Aaron as the, the great high priest. He will be the next great high priest as soon as Aaron dies uh, later on in the book of Numbers. Aaron does die in the book of Numbers, so stay tuned for that. All right. So uh, from 30 and upward to 50, number them. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Here's, this is now the census of Gershon by their fathers' households, by their families. From 30 years upward to 50 years, you shall number them, all who enter to perform the service to do the work of the tent of meeting. So what are they doing in between one month and 30? What are they doing while they're growing up? They're training, they're going to school, they're getting educated in all the Torah, all the law, all the things that they have to know as Levites. So this is the service of the families of the Gershonites and serving and caring. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of porpoise skin that is on top of it, the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen, yada, yada, yada. All right, all these items, okay? We read about them in the previous chapter. We're reading about them again in this chapter. This is their duties. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites and all their loads and all their work shall be performed at the command of Aaron and his sons. You shall assign to them as a duty for all their loads. This is the service of the families of the sons of Gershonites in the tent of meeting. Their duties shall be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. 
So 7,500 Gershonites from one month of age and up. 2630 were of an age for Levitical service. Ithamar specifically tasked with overseeing the Gershonite endeavors. Next comes the Morarites in verses 29 through 33. As for the sons of Morari, remember this is Mali and Mushi. All right, you shall number them by their families, by their father's households from 30 and upward, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, everyone who enters the service to do the work of the tent of meeting. And this is the duty of their loads for all their service in the tent of meeting, the boards, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, the pillars around the court and their sockets and their pegs and their cords with all their equipment, with all their service, you shall assign each man by name the items he is to carry. So lining up your different Murrah-right people and, uh, and their name, their by name, they know which tent peg is theirs. They know which cord is theirs, which panel is theirs. And uh, they have to go and fetch them. I imagine this is, I mean, just envisioning this in operation is, you know, like watching a, an orchestra con- conductor or something, watching all the moving parts and all the different things that come together. Just uh, extraordinary. So Moses and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families, by their father's household. This is where we get the number of Kohathites at 2750. We get the number of the Gershonites at 2630. The number of the Murrahites at 3200. So out of the 6200 that we counted earlier from one month and older, 3,200 of them are in that Levitical service range from 30 to 50. They're the ones that are on active duty, the age for Levitical service. And again, Ithamar is, uh, is their supervisor here. All right, that gets us down through verse 45. All right, down through verse 49. Okay, and that's the chapter. Now, by the way, if you ever get lost in all this, let me just pick one. You say, yep, that's me, I'm already lost. All right, let's pick Gershon. Okay, and if you're ever trying to figure these guys out, again, you right-click. Right-click is your friend. Right-click the name of Gershon. And then come down here and highlight the Gershonites. And then open up your fact book. And you're going to get a little book report here on the Gershonites. That's what the fact book is about. And in the fact book, you're going to have the section headings that are going to lead you into additional study. Or if you're just not into all the Gershonites, you want the quick answer, it's probably here, and then you're done. Okay? But here's the Gershonites. And uh, at the top, it tells you what you're dealing with. They were Israelites. They were descendants of Levi. They were of the tribe of Levi. Clan descended from Gershon, son of Levi. And it gives you an opportunity, if you want to read the key article from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, you can, or you don't have to. You can just read the opening paragraph there as a snippet, a little blurb, gives you a clue that, oh, okay, that's what it is. These are the Gershonites. A clan of the Levites, descendants of Gershon, there's the verses. All right, we get it. The men of the Levitical clan were assigned to serve at the tent of meeting and also may have carried the tabernacle. That's details that come from chapter 10. Then... I mean, if you want to read more, you can read more. You can click on that. It'll open it up. But then when you get to media, these are fun. You can start to spot some of these. So like here is the Levites from Numbers chapter 3, Temple Treasurers from First Chronicles 26, 
the ark brought to Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 15. So you can see your different charts. Let's pick on this one here. It's the media from Numbers chapter 3. Real close to what we're looking at in the Bible now, right? We were just in chapter 3, now we're in chapter 4. And so here's your biblical people diagrams, and this is where you're going to find the, uh, the, the, the clans, okay? Of course, you can zoom in based on uh, age and eyesight and whatever else. So on a graphical basis, in fact, we can go ahead and pop it out so it floats in its own window. Float this panel and maximize it. All right, so you can see Levi. Gershon, Kohath, Merari. You see the clans. It's, it's graphical. It's visual. I, I love this stuff. This, I, I can read something 20 times, but if I can see it in a graph, in a picture, now I can lock in on it. And I can see the two families within the clan of Gershon, Libni and Shimei. And I can see the four under Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. I see the two under Merari. So there's the eight family branches within the three clans of the one tribe, the priestly tribe of Levi. And then as we start getting into these other details, the family group of Libni the person is the family group of the Libniites, right? Or the Shimeiites, or the Amronites, or the Izharites, or the Hebronites. And, and you see these, these literal people became heads of these family divisions, and they were known by these family divisions for, for centuries ever after. And so all in all, whether you were a Libniite or a Shimeite, you were a, a Gershonite, obviously. Whether you were an Amramite, an Izharite, a Hebronite, or an Uzielite, all of those family groups fell under the clan of Kohathites. Okay? And that might be a concern to you if there happens to be a rebellion, maybe you know, like the rebellion of Korah or some other rebellion, and maybe the clan is implicated in that rebellion, that might be of interest to you, okay? And so you got to figure out real quickly, am I lining up for judgment here? Am I lining up for blessing? Am I associating with a rebel? Am I declaring before the Lord that I am not connected to that rebellion? So stay tuned on that. And then here's these uh, personal leaders that we read about in chapter 3. And then some of this too, I don't know why they do this. If, if um, I like the vibrant, but you can go with thin, you can go with minimal, you can go with classic, you can go with informal. Some of these are just dumb. The cartoon, comic, graffiti. I mean, honestly, I, th I think at a certain point the, the Faith Life programmers were just bored one day and said, hey, let's create different... Uh, Faith Life started to go uh, emoji or whatever. Oh, I'm going to leave it there on Vibrant. Alright, that's what I was going to show you last hour, so I'm glad the Lord helped me remember that this hour. Alright, so we have chapter 4. Now on to chapter 5. And this chapter is fun. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, so there's certain things that come up in different books of the Bible. And so when you know that you're starting a book of the Bible and you think, ooh, this is the book that has that, right? So you start getting geared up for it. You start getting ready for it. 
So, um, you know, like you know that the book of Numbers has the talking donkey, right? You know, it has Balaam and Balaam's ass. And, and, and so you're looking forward to that, okay? That's not yet. That's not until 22 through 24. We've got many more chapters to get to that. Uh, but we also have the spies and, the, and how they got fearful at Kadesh Barnea. And, and that's not this either, okay? That's chapter 11. We're going to get to that. This chapter, though, is curious. This chapter is a um, chapter on jealousy. And it's a curious chapter because it's a common trait for all of humanity, uh, not just for Israel, not just, I mean, in the New Testament, Old Testament, doesn't matter. Human beings are human beings. And I think there's been jealousy probably ever since, I mean, maybe not Adam and Eve, because who would they be jealous of? But there would be, following Adam and Eve, there would be multiple people on the earth and there would be reason to be suspicious of a uh, spouse and issues there. So we're going to talk about restoration. We're going to talk about jealousy. And there's a, a procedure that's put into place here. And I don't know how often it was used in the centuries afterwards. We don't have a Bible story that said, oh, uh, you know, it was used in this episode and it worked and here's what happened. And, and we don't have the example of that. But we do have the example spelled out here. That's what we're going to deal with. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Remember back in Leviticus, we had extensive details about blemishes, about skin disorders, about things that weren't medical issues. They weren't calling for doctors. They were calling for priests. And the priest had to come and give a visual inspection. And the priest had to declare clean versus unclean, right? It's a matter of personal uh, ceremonial purity for the observance of the national worship, okay? And so anyone with, uh, with a discharge, everyone who was unclean, anyone that had done something ritually that left them ineligible to function in the national um, worship, they had to pitch a tent outside the camp. They could not be identified with the holy people of God in the camp formation, so this is the time to separate. You shall send away both male and female. You shall send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell in their midst. And you can imagine that you would end up with the two camps, really. You would end up with the main camp, clean, and then you would end up with the followers outside the camp. So send them outside the camp so they will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. And the sons of Israel did so and sent them outside the camp just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, the sons of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel when a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty. Then he shall confess his sins which he has committed, and he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth of it, and give it to him whom he has wronged. Okay, so Israel is being given instructions on how to restore fellowship between men, the process of human restitution and human reconciliation. And this is something that we don't have, uh, I mean we do, in the New Testament, but it's not spelled out in quite the same way uh, legislatively in the New Testament like it is in the Old Testament. I mean, we understand that we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now I'm back in fellowship, I'm spiritual, I'm good in God's eyes, but 
What do I got to do with my fellow man? Who's the human being that I somehow, I didn't sin against them, but I did transgress. I did offend. And so is there now a duty that I might have to reconcile with, uh, with a brother in Christ or a sister or somebody in, uh, in an, an enemy maybe? Whoever it is that I have transgressed against, if I have a sin against God, I may have an offense against man that has to be dealt with biblically. So uh, this is part of what Israel is receiving in their instructions to so how they can function as a covenant people in, uh, on this earth. So, add a fifth, pay it back. Give it to him whom he is wrong. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest besides the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also, every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they offer to the priests, shall be his. So every man's holy gifts shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. And so these, this is the process for human restitution. Now, some things aren't possible. Uh, we, we learn in other passages, I mean, there's no restitution uh, for um, adultery. For example, Proverbs tells us that, that there's no, you can't pay him back. There's nothing you can pay. You can't remedy that with a, with a guilt offering or with a trespass offering or with any kind of sum. He won't be satisfied. You can add a fifth to it. You can double it, whatever. The man's not going to be satisfied. The man is going to want your head. That's the, the, the death penalty is, is, the, is there for a reason and his will be the first hand against you in casting that first stone. So some of these things I hope, uh, you know, we can see as they work out in in other situations. All right, which gets us now to the adultery test. Remember in uh, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, simple. But what if I do? What if they do? What if somebody does? What are the consequences? Well, the consequences are death. We've seen that. The consequence is death for both parties because it takes two to tango. It's not just the woman that gets dragged before Jesus. Where was the man in that picture? He should have been dragged there too. Mosaic law sentences both of them to death. All right, well, what if I didn't catch him in the act? What if I just suspect? What if I have a suspicion? Okay, well, glad you asked. There is a procedure in place for this, okay? And this is not for the perpetually suspicious. This is for a holy people and maintaining the holiness as unto the Lord. Because remember, the God they serve is the God that knows everything. The God they serve is the God who knows if there is the, the, if the, if the cheating's going on. Okay? So they have procedures now that are in place for this nation. I wouldn't try it today. It doesn't apply to us. So speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, she has not been caught in the act. Okay, well, I guess she got away with it. Is that how it works? I mean, she covered her tracks, she didn't get caught, she was extra sneaky. You know, the, the point is, the sin is worthy of death, but remember, you can't execute without two witnesses. You need to have, by every two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. So what's going to happen in this case? Because notice now in verse 14, a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife. 
Now this spirit of jealousy that comes over. Oh, there was so much that... Yeah. There is so much that gets addressed here. And in fact, there are denominations that have... Um, they have developed entire angelologies centered on a spirit of greed, a spirit of jealousy, a spirit of lust, a spirit of, I mean, they've just, a spirit of drunkenness, a spirit of, you name it, they've, they've assigned a, a spirit of to that, uh, human sin and essentially using, um, using those as the excuses for why, you know, we do what we do. Well, just a spirit of lust came upon me and, and whatever, whatever. So, they get a lot of mileage out of something that really doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible besides here, okay? This spirit of jealousy. And, and it's not a demon that's provoking him to a sin. It's actually, I think it's a conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a sense, it's a warning that's being given for one reason or the other, okay? And this chapter is going to actually be teaching us that in Many of these cases, she is guilty. She's going to be found out. But in other cases, she's going to be innocent. So why is this even happening? Why is a spirit of jealousy coming over the man and she hadn't done anything? Okay. Well, again, this is uh, it's a curious thing. This is a unique chapter all throughout the Bible, anyway. But the concept is curious to me because it's showing, uh, I think, <laughs> it's showing. Some of the um, the toughest things that a, a marriage has to deal with, that a husband and wife have to deal with, is the fact that you got two sin natures and the two become one, and you're left and you're supposed to have the the uh, the utmost trust of any human relationship, and yet when that's broken, or when somebody thinks it's broken, or when somebody just doesn't know and they're wondering if it's broken, then that can be worse than having it broken, right? If you think about it, in some ways, it's worse not knowing and thinking it might be true than knowing for a fact, and at least you can get past it and forgive or do what you need to do in, uh, in those cases. So I think that's what's happening here. I think this is why God provided for His covenant people to have this provision for all of their marriages in the land of, of, of Israel, that they would have this as an option. And I think too that especially if a, if there's a sneaky spouse that thinks they can sneak the 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 idea as a, as an incentive as a, as a deterrent to know that you know however sneaky you think you are, God knows everything, and your spouse can just go to the the priest and and get this figured out. Okay. So. A spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself. Or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself. One way or the other, and he doesn't know. All he knows is the spirit of jealousy is on him right now and it's bugging him. So the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal he shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity. And I have to suspect too that maybe there's a little bit of grace in this too, because I don't know. <laughs> if, if most of these Jewish husbands, and if if they were like me, I'd be I'd be saying, honey, where do we keep the barley meal? 
<laughs> I wouldn't know. I assume it's in the kitchen somewhere. That's why we have a kitchen, in it? Something? Anyway, so yeah, if the husband starts asking, where's the barley meal? So he has to take her to the priest, and he's got this recipe in hand, ready to go. Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. Incidentally, this is all written in a one-direction thing only. I suspect it was either direction. I think a wife could have done the same thing. Okay. So the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord. And the priest shall take the holy water in an earthenware vessel. He shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. That sounds nasty. All right. Then the priest shall have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose. The representation of the hair, that's curious too. The single woman, the unmarried woman, the married woman, and the harlot all had different hairstyles in the ancient world and different uh, penalties that were inflicted in terms of shaving the head of the, of the harlot. All right, so she stands before the Lord, lets the hair of the woman's head go loose, and place the grain offering of the memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, now this is, Again, this is the priest is the representative of the Lord. The Lord God of Israel, the God of truth. All right, so if you're going to take an oath, standing in the presence of the Lord, standing in the presence of his priest, think about that. I mean, maybe this is lost to us because we, we don't have the dread of these oaths. We put our hand on a Bible, we swear, so help me God and whatever. But we've lost the fear and reverence of, a, of an oath uttered in the presence of God. So the priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man has lain with you and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. So she's going to swear the oath and then she has protection from the, the bitter water if she's in fact innocent. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, then the priest shall have the woman swear the oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. Now this is not just uh, to force a confession. This is not just to, um, to bring about a confession so that now we, we don't need witnesses anymore. She admitted it. We can stone her to death now. No, no. This is worse than that. Okay? Because she's not going to be stoned to death in this. She's going to carry long-term physiological disfigurements, long-term physiological um, consequences, okay? Things that would make this kind of activity uh, unpleasant, painful, um, less uh, desirable, less potential for future offending, whatever the case may be. All right. So, uh, your thigh waste away, your abdomen swell. This water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell, your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So the priest shall then write these curses on a scroll. He shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. He shall then make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse. 
You following all this? I think I got lost with the dust. But now we've got... Okay. Writing these curses on a scroll and washing them off into the water of the bitterness. That's interesting. The making of the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause the bitterness. Okay? If she's guilty. If not, I guess it tastes nasty, but she doesn't have the consequences. So the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering and it's, as its memorial offering, offer it up in smoke on the altar. Afterward, he shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about. And this is, this is in the presence of God, okay? At the altar, they've waved the, the, the offering before the Lord. They've got his attention. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell, her thigh will waste away, and the women and the woman will become a curse among her people. But the one, but if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will be free and conceive children. So some of the other effects we recognize with the belly and the thigh and the disfigurements also comes the infertility, comes the sterility, the, uh, the non, non-bearing of children is the consequence of her adultery. And it's kind of curious too what other consequences are going to happen at that point. Because this man doesn't have an heir and his wife has betrayed him. What's he going to do? How's he going to produce an heir? And... Um, you know, suspicion at this point then that he would be obtaining a, a concubine, that he would be obtaining a, a female servant of some type to in order to bear a son and to carry on his name, because it's not going to be her. She's not having children from this point forward. But if she has not defiled herself, if she's clean, she will then be free and conceive children, and then he and her have some work to do. They've got to patch up the trust issue here. Because he suspected her and she was innocent. He now knows from God himself that she's innocent. And, uh, and now they've got to restore the lost trust. And then, well, why did you suspect me? What were you afraid of? What was, you know, so clearly um, communication has broken down. And uh, today's a day to fix that. Let's, uh, let's get it right moving forward. So this is the law of jealousy. When a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear her guilt. That's if in fact she is guilty. All right, so Israel was instructed in the law of jealousy. This ritual was a highly specialized mechanism for investigating a potential case of adultery. <coughs> Curious how it could be done. Any priest could officiate. Any priest at the gate of the tabernacle could officiate. Um, maybe there were other mechanisms you could think. They could go to the high priest and he could pull out a Urim or a Thummim if, uh, you know, Urim if guilty, Thummim if not guilty, whatever the case may be. But this doesn't involve the high priest. This involves any priest. Okay. All right. 
highly specialized mechanism for investigating potential case of adultery. The initiation of this ritual was a response to a spirit of jealousy coming upon the husband. The ruch kana. Ruch kana. And <coughs> the, the ruch is the same spirit that we have for God the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit that we have for a spirit that's within man, a human spirit. It's the same spirit that's employed of evil spirits that, that uh, torment humanity. It's a basic word for spirit, wind, or breath. <coughs> and then the kana. Now jealousy, more often than not, jealousy in human terms is a sin. But jealousy in divine terms, God himself is jealous. This is one of his names. God himself is jealous. So um, if you and I are subject to sinful jealousy, that can be a problem and has to be dealt with has to be ended. You can't let that jealousy linger for weeks and months and years at a time. You've got to end it. And I think that's part of the blessing of why this system was created. So that God could use this momentary spirit of jealousy to get it behind them. Get it off the table. Don't let it linger. Give them a firm answer one way or the other and get past it. Because as long as it's not resolved, as long as it's just a suspicion, then uh, then you're going to have months and years and, and all kinds of uh, of, of problems. So solve it now, fix it now, get past it, and get done. The spirit of jealousy. Now, in the case of an innocent wife, the spirit of jealousy is obviously a deceiving spirit. I'm not so sure about that. God himself may have had reasons to send that spirit. Okay, And even if it is a deceiving spirit, God gave permission for that spirit to do this. Are you familiar with 1 Kings 22? If not, let's look at it tonight. First Kings 22. There's a setting here. A prophet named Micaiah in First Kings 22. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And this chapter cracks me up in a lot of ways. Um, Jehoshaphat is visiting the king of the north and they're doing these things, and and um, so they inquire of all these false prophets, these prophets of Baal, and and uh, yeah, and Jehoshaphat says, "Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him?" You know, um, you know, down south in Judah, we've got Yahweh prophets, you know, and up here in the, in the northern kingdom, you seem to have these Baal prophets, and Je- and Jehoshaphat says, "Yeah, I'm not impressed with that." Do, is there not yet a Yahweh prophet here that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, well, we have one still. There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. <laughs> you know, He's the one guy that speaks the truth, and I never go hear what he has to say. I hate that guy. I hate his whole church. I hate everything about him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. He says, I hate that guy. And, and, you know, I mean, he never says anything good about me. He always says bad things. And, and this king of Israel says, I don't have time for that. I don't want to listen to that. Who wants to? You know, and, and how human is this when you have presidents or political leaders and all they want to hear is what they want to hear. So they surround themselves with yes men and then, and then anybody that tells them the truth is, gets fired. You know, you're out of here. <laughs> He's Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of 
Imlah. And so this is what happens. And he gets brought in. Here we go. Because all the prophets were saying, yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead. Yes, prosper. Yes, the Lord is giving into the hand of the king. Yes, you should do this. This war is great. You're going to do fine. And uh, so can we just do what these guys are all saying? Why do we have to ask this other prophet? Why do we have to ask the prophet of the Lord? So, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. He's tipping him off ahead of time. This is what you better prophesy if you want to be on board with what everybody else is saying. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I shall speak. See, Micaiah is a real prophet. He doesn't make stuff up. He just preaches what God tells him to preach and, and takes it from there. So he comes to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but truth in the name of the Lord? See, Micaiah was just, he was lying. He was just telling what he wanted to hear. So he said, and then the king knew better. He knew he was being lied to. He said, I adjure you, speak nothing but truth in the name of the Lord. So he said, all right. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil Okay, now here's the basis for how all of this happens. What we've seen now are prophets and kings, and we've seen everything in the earthly sphere that's happening here. Next, we get a vision of what's happening in heaven. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. You know what that means? It means you have elect angels and you have fallen angels. You have good spirits, you have evil spirits. And of course, they all, you know, we saw this in Job where they go to give reports and what they've learned and what they're observing. Satan also appeared among them to make his accusations and all of that. But they're divided right and left. So the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. So there's a lot of folks that want to do it, but here's one that has a plan. And the Lord said to him, how? He said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And this is what I'm getting to back to the Numbers chapter 5 episode, a deceiving spirit, an influence that is not only conveying an untruth, but leaving such a sense of jealousy and guilt and betrayal that that the human being influenced by that spirit is, is a bit overwhelmed, overwhelmed with what, uh, what they're influenced with here. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. And you can imagine if this scene in heaven is anything, because Ahab is, Ahab's not a good guy. Ahab's a wicked king, but he is Jewish. He is one of God's chosen people. And as such, you know, God doesn't just let demons afflict his, his, his people unless, 
for permissive will purposes, he's got judgment that he wants to send. And then, you know, he asks for volunteers and he doesn't have a hard time finding any because one said this and another said that and they were all eager to do it until this guy steps up and says he's got the plan. So go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So Micaiah has the whole story. Micaiah knows why those prophets of Baal are prophesying what they're prophesying, and he knows about the demons, the the evil spirits that are influencing their messages, and why it is that the king is so um, influenced by these heavenly powers, these these, uh, demonic powers. Then Zedekiah the son of Hananiah came and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, how did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? And uh, Zedekiah has to realize it wasn't the Holy Spirit speaking through him, but it is speaking through Micaiah. So Micaiah said, behold, you shall see that on the day when you enter an inner room and hide yourself. (laughs) You know, I imagine the ministry that these prophets had towards the false prophets that were opposed to them, especially when they can foretell the day that these false prophets are going to die. So the king of Israel said, take Micaiah and return him to Amon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, thus says the king, put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, that's not going to (laughs) happen. If indeed you do return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. You know, if you're right, I'm a false prophet because you're not coming back. And he said, listen, all you people. Anyway, there's more on this. This is a great chapter. We'll get to this at some point through the Bible. But the, the illustration of what this shows is that a spirit of jealousy might come on a man and under the angelic influences of this, he may just absolutely be certain that his wife has cheated on him. And maybe she has, maybe she hasn't, but they're going to find out. The provision is going to be made for truth to be manifest through the priesthood, through the, uh, the oath that is taken before the God of truth. In the case of the guilty wife, the spirit of jealousy is used by the Lord to bring the hidden shameful things to light. This is what God does. He brings hidden things to light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. The judgment seat of Christ is described as the time when the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Because some things appear to be great. And, and fellow members of the church are all excited saying, oh, look at so-and-so, he's doing this and he's doing this and he's got all this fruitful ministry. And then we're going to find out of the judgment seat of Christ it was all wood, hand, stubble. It was all worthless. That brother was, yeah, he was serving, but he was serving for the wrong motives. He was serving in carnality. He was serving hoping to you know, make a big splash and, and, and impress people. And evidently he impressed whoever he impressed, but he didn't impress God because the motives of men's hearts are disclosed. And if the motive is right, each man's praise will come to him from God. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen: God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So let's stop getting worked up about the things in the here and now. Just keep your eyes on the Lord, stay faithful, serve him, and everything's going to be made clear on judgment day. Don't sweat it. If uh, if you think, oh, you know, I'm being cheated or, oh, I'm being robbed or, oh, uh, you know, somebody else is getting the credit for this and whatever, I tell you, you can bear a whole lot more fruit if you don't care who gets the credit. If you're just staying faithful and if you're just serving God, then let him worry about that. And at the Bema seat, um, the things that are hidden will be exposed.
we can be thankful for that. All right. As far as the uh, the ritual here in Numbers chapter five, um, there's a lot of uh, commentary on this. There's a lot of thoughts about this. I'll tell you what this is not, because the comparative religion crowd and a whole bunch of other folks. They want to view this as something comparable to what the pagans might do in their religions or their systems and whatever. The nature of this ritual was God revealing His will through the mediation of His priesthood on behalf of man. Can we be clear on that? This husband and wife, they've got a problem. How are they going to fix it? How are they going to solve it? How are they going to do anything? Well, it's going to be before the Lord. It's going to be before the Lord through His mediating priesthood. This is not a pagan trial by ordeal. This is not any kind of a, a ritual. And it's common in the, in the, among pagans to have um, things, even in uh, fairly modern times. I mean, in the history of this nation, for example. You, um, you, remember, no, you don't remember, nobody here remembers, but maybe you read about uh, Salem witch trials, for example. Uh, different ordeals, different tests to see you know, if she's a witch, if she's not a witch, if she's, uh, she's going to drown or not drown, and different uh, ordeals to test the different things. And, of course, none of that's biblical. All of that's just superstition and whatever else. And, uh, and that, that's not what this is. Okay? God is not giving them a pagan practice whereby they can practice sorcery or some kind of a soothsaying divination thing where they can discover um, it's not a, a divination practice. Okay? It, is a, it is a sanctified humbling before the priesthood of God. Submitting yourself to the priesthood of God. The woman has to submit to it. The man has to submit to it. Neither one of them, well the woman knows how it's going to turn out. The man doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Okay, And so in their marriage as they are proceeding forward on this basis they are submitting to the spiritual leadership that is over them. God is revealing His will through the mediation of His priesthood on behalf of man. And so we can, we can consider such things. And is there a church age application? No. <laughs> yes and no. Okay, nothing like this. Nothing like this. There's nothing where, you know, a church member drags his wife to the pastor's office and says, you know, I don't have a ritual to do with... with barley or anything else on on this okay but it is a recognition that a man and a woman in marriage that they are heirs together of the grace of life they are under the authority of the word of god and that the pastor god has assigned to them the pastor that is provided for the shepherding of their souls would be a good idea <laughs> to to pray with him to discuss these things with him to wrestle with with issues that you are wrestling with in uh, in these in these tough things. I guess that's all I can say on that. All right. Because there are no magic wands. Can't uh, pull out an urm and thummim and tell you the answers. Okay, We don't have the shadow ritual that the Old Testament had. We shouldn't need the shadow ritual that the Old Testament had. We have the, the substance of walking in Christ. And so as we speak the truth in love, these things ought to uh, be made clear. All right, well, that gets us through the end of chapter 5. Chapter 6, when we come back on Tuesday night, we'll move on to day 62. We've got Nazarite vows in chapter 6. 
We've got, uh, oh, there's some other things coming up. Numbers has so many things, little hidden gems, little treasures of things, and you forget, oh yeah, that was in the book of Numbers, wasn't it? And we, we forget it because it's not high on our favorite list of books. But the more that we see these stories, we should be thankful that God has given them to us. So the law of the Nazarites, the law of the foolish vow, the, the blessings of a spiritual father in protecting a daughter, and then handing that protection off to her husband, there's some, there's some amazing things, and they come up for us here in the book of Numbers. So uh, it's not all just about the talking donkey and whatever else happens there with Balaam. Okay? There's a lot more doctrine to be found here in the book of Numbers. All right. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for this day and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And we thank you, Father, for the, um, the, the blessings that we have in, uh, in studying together to show ourselves approved and reading the scriptures daily and studying together. This has been such a saturation, Father, and we need it. We, we need it. Our, our church needs it. Our nation needs it. This world needs it, Father. And, uh, and I thank you for the stability that comes by being grounded in doctrine. Father, so keep our eyes fixed on you. Keep us stable during turbulent times. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.